Hello everybody and welcome to yet another It's Way Late Than Normal to be recording this episode, episode of Pottywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hesser, and with me as always is... I'm not well. I have a cold. <clears throat> I'm just recovering. So you'll have to forgive me. Yes, but my name is Andrew Roger Carson and I am your co-host this week as well as every week. Hi. So, welcome to episode 27. This is going to be a very, very special episode. Later on, we have Bill Daly and Mark Marshall talking about Harry Potter and the Philosopher Sorcerer's Stone. Yes, indeed. This is the first time we've actually had two guests on together. It's a milestone. Time will only tell if it works. Well, they said the same thing about us. Mm. Uh, And time will also only tell if The Eternals is going to be a big movie now that a bunch of countries have basically pulled it from release. Really? Why? Uh, apparently, so the early news goes, and this is news that I was only alerted to an hour ago, mm-hmm. it's coming down to the fact that there is a same-sex relationship uh, within that movie. Okay. Uh, which is a sad state of affairs, if that is the real genuine reason, because there's uh. no other reason to pull a Marvel movie. Well, it all depends on how pronounced it was, because they've tried to force um, this kind of stuff into movies before. Because they were saying that, um, what's his name, the the guy who's um, Gaston's lackey in the Beauty and the Beast live-action movie, he was supposed to be gay. Um, I haven't seen it because the live-action stuff just doesn't interest me. Uh, but then there was, oh, they've squeezed a gay subplot into the last Star Wars film, and it was just to women kissing right at the very end. Nothing of else. Of course, Loki Loki is bisexual, but I guess that's okay because he obviously sleeps with women as well. But obviously, if it's a, a same-sex gay relationship, then that's a no-go in certain parts of the world. Yes. And you know what? It's time you people just grow up. Pretty grow much. Up and get with the times, okay? It's the 21st century. You know, there are more things to worry about than who you decide that you want to fall in love with. There really is. So much more going on that needs your time and attention. That if the biggest thing that you can think of to worry about is two men getting together or two women getting together or someone who wants to become a man becoming a woman getting together, just stop worrying about that shit. Yeah, what serious effect does it have on your day-to-day life? Nothing. Honestly, nothing. No. It doesn't do. It it makes no freaking difference to your life whatsoever. Live your life the way you want to live it. And... That's it. Just release Eternals, all right? It's it's Chloe. It's Chloe's movie. You know, she's a. And I had this conversation with someone the other day because they were like, "Oh well, you know, th- this doesn't seem to be getting as good a reviews." And it's like I think that was me. Chloe Zhao. Was that you? Yeah, it was me because I was saying that I wasn't really having any interest in this new wave of Marvel movies because it's all kind oh, of properties yes. that I hadn't really heard of or had no idea behind. And your uneducated filth. Yes. I'm going to see Eternals this Saturday on release. And I'm really looking forward to it. Even though that some reporters who were actually there to, you know, watch the film as a advanced screening for critics couldn't help but tell us what the post credit bloody scene was. Mm. Hell. Yes. If you're the kind you of person fired. that uh that 
reviews and films and you give away spoilers without saying spoiler alert, then yeah, you should not only be fired, but you should also have your entrails pulled out and then dragged over a hot coal. Yeah. Imagine coming out of like the Empire Strikes Back and just saying, hey, it's Luke's dad. <laughs> that's that's the equivalent of what it is now. Back then you couldn't imagine that happening and being allowed to live. And I guess it's kind of the same now. I think these are the people that should be having cancel culture all over them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. it should. Redirect, redirect those energies to people who just will refuse to see a movie because it has gay content in it and people who post spoilers just to be a dick. Well, if we're talking about spoilers, then I'm going to flag up a spoiler warning right now because we have to get on and talk about uh, the what's in the box from last week, Colours. So, yes, I will be going into spoiler territory with this movie, so you have been warned. Bum, bum, bum. Let's talk Colours. Yes, Colours. This is the 1988 movie directed by Dennis Hopper and starring um, my girlfriend's favourite person in the world ever. <laughs> she, she doesn't like Sean Penn at all. At all. But yes, uh, it stars Sean Penn as Danny McGavin and Robert DeVell as Bob Hodges, two LAPD officers that are both on the crash unit, which is the anti-gang uh, unit in mid-80s LA. And the story follows them as they go around having to deal with these various gangs of Bloods and the Crips and the Latinos and all the rest of them. And, and yeah, I, I, to be honest, coming from the, the directoral hands of, I wanted to say Dennis Potter then, but uh, Dennis Hopper. Getting <laughs> <laughs> ahead of yourself. Yes, Dennis Potter, <laughs> that's something else entirely. Um, I was expecting something a bit more crazy, but it's actually pretty grounded for the 80s, grounded for the 80s, and, and now... It's actually kind of quaint the way that it's filmed and particularly the way that the music is. And it, it just looks oh, yeah. like an 80s movie through and through. Oh, it's a great soundtrack on it. I'm sorry. That, 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 is, a, that is an awesome 80s soundtrack, if ever I heard one. It's a very 80s soundtrack, yeah. if ever I've heard one. Yeah, Complete Good old Herbie Hancock. ICT and Scoopy Scoopy Dog Dog, as Father Ted used to say. Um <laughs> But yeah, you've got these uh, these two cops, and they're both kind of at loggerheads. You, obviously, you've got Robert Duvall, who represents the old guard, and is doing uh, is spent his time on crash, and is now wanting to get off into into uh, juvenile crimes. And then you've got McGavin, Sean Penn, who's the new kid to the team, and who's brash and wants to go around and change the world, arresting everybody in their beds. And the two come to loggerheads and about the way that they go about things. Duval basically wants to try and do like a softly, softly approach and get to know the people that are on the streets and their trust and go from there. Whereas Penn just wants to run around and arrest everybody. And things come to a head as you realize that life on the streets is not all black and white. Now, like I said, there is spoilers. And um, if you haven't already guessed it, Robert Duval being pulled off the juvenile section to crash and then talking at length about having a wife and three kids so early on in the movie just <laughs> raised red flags for me and i've got about three or four pages worth of notes here and about the third entry on this is duval dead by end <laughs> and yes spoiler alert he is killed 
in action by the end of the movie. I just saw it coming. I really did. It was it was just blatant. Uh, it was a good death scene, though. I will give it that. I, oh, I, yeah. I thought it was a pretty good death scene. I thought Devel's performance... I thought both of their performances throughout the whole thing was very, very well done. I didn't think that the two of them had enough scenes together as actual characters to warrant a lot of the moments that they had. They have a few scenes where, they, where they're at loggerheads with each other. And it might just have been me, but it didn't seem like it was actually warranted. It just seemed to just suddenly happen out of nowhere. But one of them comes down to his relationship with uh, Maria Conchita Alonso, who you might remember from The Running Man. Indeed. Yes. Yes, I can't remember her character in that, but yes, she's uh, she's in The Running Man as well. Amber. Amber. That's it. Yeah. Then in loads of other stuff as well. But uh, her and McGavin have a relationship, and it like, turns out that she's uh, either related to or is part of the gang of this guy called Fish. But uh, let's just have a quick talk about some of the uh, the side characters before we get into the actual socio-political details about the movie. You've got some surprising cameos in there. Right from the opening, you've got, uh, you've got one of the Wayans in there, Damon Wayans. Yep. Uh, popping up really early on. One of the 5,000 Wayan brothers that they seem to be. <laughs> yeah, they got one Wayans in there. Yeah. Um, and uh, in a really early role for him, uh, Don Cheadle. Yes. Old um, War Machine himself. Yes. Did you spot the uh, Tony Todd cameo? Oh, I was just about to get onto that. Yes, yeah. I did spot the Tony Todd cameo in the middle of a little uh, town hall, so to speak, where the police are just asking the community for help. This is bullshit. He's that classic character in any... Like, I was in Vietnam. Movie. He's like, yeah, you were. You were in Platoon. Yes. We can't tell by the uh, the green army jacket that you are wearing in this scene. <laughs> yeah, the camouflage jacket. <laughs> just, just to hammer that home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the um the, the better ones is the character of Frog mm-hmm. who runs the uh, is it the Chicanos I get or whatever Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I do want um, to bring up a special mention about that in a minute but go on. The the actor's name is Trinidad Silva. Mm-hmm. Uh who sadly died shortly after the movie was released yeah. while he was actually filming UHF which is which is one of our favorites yeah. Yes, because he played Raoul in Raoul's Wild Kingdom, who liked to throw the animals out of the window. <laughs> but yeah, and it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant role. But sadly, he was killed by a drunk driver. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very tragic. He was a great in this movie as well. Yeah, I think they were supposed to be having more scenes of Raoul in UHF, but obviously because because uh, he was sadly killed, it never occurred. But I do want to I do want to bring up his gang. Because I've never seen such a multi-ethnic gang of uh, of anything in my entire life. It's basically a Latino gang with African American members and a ginger. <laughs> Agent Johnson and Malachi. <laughs> Agent Agent Johnson from Die Hard and Malachi from yeah. Children in the Corn. It's very weird. I mean, it it ran into the realms of uh, bizarre when you realise that. They'd let a ginger into that, that was group. It. That was it. You can imagine like this disparate group of people all coming together. But <laughs> this is guy in there who looks like the most Irish person you have ever met in your life. <laughs> Pale skin and bright red hair. He looks like Ron Weasley. Yeah. Yeah. 
looks like Seamus with iron deficiencies. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, he but, does. Um, okay, well, I got uh, a few little things on this movie because I watched it as well. Scoot. Right, and uh, the thing is, as you probably remember, I mean, Dennis Hopper. Well, I mean, you you think of Dennis Hopper, you think Easy Rider, you think uh, his manic turn in Blue Velvet, mm -hmm. uh, or on the other side, the blockbuster side, you know him as, you know, the main bad guy from Speed, or probably the best thing about Waterworld. <laughs> it's true. But, uh, <laughs> which is true. Um, but this was the uh, infamous time in the 80s when uh, Sean Penn was arrested because he hit an extra on this movie. Mm -hmm. He ended up spending 33 days in jail because the extra was taking pictures of him without permission. And that's where the whole Sean Penn bad boy thing started while making this movie. Also in this movie, they hired real gang members to protect the production at all time. Uh, and some of them were actually extras in the movie, and two of them were actually shot during the production <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, it makes you think, what the hell are they doing when... They're not trying to shoot you, they're trying to shoot your security. Yes. Um. But I, I do love the fact that when you kind of meet that multi-ethnic group mm -hmm. and a little bit of geography here, that is the infamous uh, Belmont Tunnel, also known as the Toluca Substation. And it is in LA, a, one of the designated historical monuments, uh, as you may have remembered it from Predator 2 at the end. Uh, what it was, it, exactly, yes. It was the former Pacific Electric Railway line that went between the uh, subway terminal building in downtown LA all the way to Westlake. And it is still classed as a historic monument today. But uh, I've been told, don't go there. No. <laughs> don't go down there. Well, speaking of which, if you're going to be talking about monuments and landmarks, there's at least four uh, places that uh, were in the movie falling down. Yes, very which true. Had, uh, which had Robert Duvall as a police officer in that movie. Uh, sorry for the squeaky chair. It's my turn tonight. Uh, let me see. Because <laughs> usually it's you. Usually I'm editing out your squeaky chair. I know. I'm totally zen in my chair. I don't move. <laughs> see, I'm not used to being in the chair. I'm used to I'm used to being sat upstairs on a nice comfy bed. Yeah. There's, there's things that the movie does very well. There's things that it doesn't do very well. Um, the revelation that uh, Maria Conchita Alonso's character is part of the gang just feels a little bit heavy-fisted um the relationship between the two characters doesn't feel like it gels as well as it could do at times and the the ending was just telegraphed way too early um but you know there's some pretty solid performances in there it does its job well it is quite a gripping film and it deals with some themes which are still being worked on today the issues of race in uh, in policing the police being used as a gang and it, something which is thrown up particularly over the last year with uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, shifting the light onto the police actions and so on. Now, it, no, that's very, very different from gang activity, but it does still point to the fact that in some places, the police are just viewed as just another gang. It's just that they've got badges and they're legitimate. So take from that what you will. It's certainly something which the movie brings up and is doesn't really kind of shy away from at times. So very good. Yeah. Very good. And uh, with that in mind, it is time to seek into our anniversaries. Watch them again all of the time. Or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are. 
when we learn their anniversary. Ah, what? Yeah, is it over? Yeah. That was ridiculously loud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you fall asleep on your mic. Yeah, <sighs> done for comedic anyway, effect. Anniversaries this week in movie release history. Some good, some bad. We don't know until we let you know. So, can you believe, Steve? Go on, Andrew. That forty years ago this week. Halloween 2 was released. Is that the return of Michael Myers? Uh, no, that's Halloween 4 or 5. Right. Um, Halloween 2 was basically just Halloween 2. But um, it was directed by a man called Rick Rosenthal. Uh, he had directed Sean Penn's movie Bad Boys. And he'd also came back and directed... Halloween Resurrection, which might actually be one of the worst, where it's the uh, Halloween Michael Myers on a kind of Big Brother style show. <laughs> it's it's as bad as you think. I've got to be um, honest. I've completely lost track with what Halloween movie is what because I've never been massively into the franchise, and it seems like they reboot it every other movie. So I, you know, in one Laurie's a mum, another one she's not. One she's tough, another one she isn't. Another one she's not even in it. One of them has to do with like killer hats. I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, it it doesn't matter anymore because they've all kind of been eliminated from history with the new Halloween movies latching on to the very first original. So it doesn't matter anymore. But how long is it going to be before they decide that they're going to reboot this reboot? I don't know. But in this one, Michael Myers was played by a different guy. It was Nick Castle in the original. Uh, but in this, it was played by a guy called Dick Warlock, which is funny because that's my name on Tinder. Ooh. But uh, apparently what happened, uh, Dick Warlock, he passed a room and the mask was sitting on a table. So we decided, ah, here's a good idea. I'm going to put it on. I'm going to walk into Rick Rosenthal's office and just stand there uh -huh. being still staring at him. And he did this, Rosenfeld's looking at him, and he's repeatedly saying, oh, just take that mask off, blah, blah, blah. And Dick Warlock didn't budge. He didn't react at all and stared him out there. for ages. So he ended up getting the job. <laughs> so that is a great way to win a job. Nice, nice. I know. See, it's, it's, always, the, it's always the small things. Didn't need to go out there and be excessive. Little side note, uh, what was the name of the guy? Because you did mention the guy, and then I forgot his name, who who played um, Michael in the first one. What was his name? Nick Castle. Nick Castle. Um, he is actually part of John Carpenter's band. Yeah, very true. The the Coupe de Ville's. And uh, he yes. he played on Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. And funnily enough, there's a, there's a whole section about that. On Netflix, there's a show called The Movies That Made Us, uh, which is directed by uh, Brian Volkweiss. Hi, Brian. I know you listen. Hi. And uh, Hi. And they did the episode on the first Halloween, and it does actually talk about that. So mm -hmm. I would recommend that you watch that show. It is a quite amazing. It looks very different. The mask looks very different in this one. But the thing is, it was actually the exact same mask that was used in the first movie. And the story goes that Nick Castle, uh, who was the first Michael, he kept it in his back pocket during the shoots on the first movie all the time. So it naturally became a bit creased. And then Deborah Hill, the producer, uh, she took it home and it stayed under her bed for several years. And because Deborah was a major chronic smoker, uh, the mask had ended up turning yellow. So that's the way it looks in the film and that is the reason why 
So, uh, and the thing, the thing is, with all that original stuff, uh, Dick Warlock apparently ended up keeping all of that get-up, including the original mask. Dick Warlock, or Dick Warlock's family, still have the original Halloween stuff to this day. Ooh. Ooh, very nice. I wonder if they actually went out in it on Halloween. I don't know. I've always been more of a Friday the 13th fan. Yeah, but uh, John Carpenter, apparently, uh, he ended up taking over and he, he changed the speed of the movie. He, he added more blood into it and he added more nudity because that was kind of the thing for horror around that time, which um, Rick Rosenthal was not happy about, apparently, because he said he wanted to keep it just like the original Halloween, which was a pretty bloodless movie, really. Mm. You know, and it all worked on, you know, tension and, and this one was just over the top. The main problem with this movie is... It's not Halloween during the movie. It's November 1st. It's set the day after the original movie. Uh, so it's just not very good. The same problem is with the Friday the 13th movies, because I think the second one doesn't take place on Friday the 13th, or it's like the third one takes place the day after... The, no, that's it. The third one takes place the day after the second one. And that one doesn't take place on Friday the 13th. And like the first three or four literally take place over the space of about four days. So <laughs> it was Friday the 13th when it all started. And then I think it was again. And then after that, it's just like whatever random date they decided to pull out their arse. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the only thing that is worth watching in Halloween 2 is the amazing Donald Pleasance. Uh, and he is totally owning this role by Halloween too. He's the best thing in it, even though Jamie Lee Curtis is back in it as well. But no, Don Donald Pleasance is the reason to watch this movie. Yes, and sadly he died during the making of The Curse of Michael Myers. Oh yes, yeah, I think he was he was pretty much sewed into that uh, Doctor Loomis character. Yeah, pretty much. But can you believe, Steve? I don't know, Andrew. Twenty years ago this week. Okay. The Others was released. Oh. Oh, I quite like this movie. Oh, you've actually seen it? I have actually seen one for once, yes. I caught it on TV and and it was uh, quite a nice little surprise for Al. Yeah, well, directed by Alejandro Amenabar. I've probably got that name wrong. Well, Spanish director. Uh, and he did, um, he did some brilliant films around this time. A really good film called Thesis. And two brilliant films, one called Open Your Eyes with Penelope Cruz, which, to be honest, anything with Penelope Cruz in just hits the high note for me. Mm -hmm. I'm so in love with this woman. And he did a, a movie with Javier Bardem called The Sea Inside, which is also brilliant. And uh, what's noticeable about this movie, uh, Nicole Kidman's one of the best things in this movie. She is yeah. absolutely amazing in it. But apparently she tried to convince the studio and the producers to actually cast someone else. She'd just come off doing Moulin Rouge and she didn't want to do the, a, a really dark movie, which she saw this as. And apparently she even quit during the rehearsals because she was having nightmares whilst yeah. doing it. But uh, obviously they roped her back in and we're glad that they did. And it has uh, <laughs> just any time that you can have Eric Sykes show up in a big screen movie. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I think this was one of his Bless last roles. His oh, no, actually, no, I would say that this was one of his last roles, but I think he didn't die until like about 2011 or something like that. Oh, yeah, he, he was going forever, Eric Sykes. And apparently, Nicole Kidman really pressed for Eric Sykes to be hired because she and uh, Tom Cruise, who she was still with Tom at this time, and apparently 
both of them really loved his theatre work mm -hmm. uh, that they'd gone and see. So they, they really pushed for Eric Sykes and it was so great to see him in it. This has a little bit of history. This has some kudos to its name, this movie. Go on. Apart from the fact that it's bloody scary. But this was the first film to win Best Film at the Goyas, the Spanish Film Awards, that didn't have a single Spanish word spoken in it. Oh, now that is a good fact. And not only that, this is one of the highest grossing horror movies of all time that took in 200 million. And it is currently the highest grossing Spanish film in worldwide box office history. Mm. Yeah, you would have thought Christopher Eccleston would have put a bit more effort into it then, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm an asshole. Do I look like an asshole? Because let's be um, honest, he shows up. He's in it for about five minutes. He emotes about as much as this desk and then goes. It's like, come on, Chris. I know you're not all about the money and the Hollywood lifestyle, but, you know, put a little bit of effort into it. Saying yeah, that, though, he's... he's from Manchester, so he'll probably come around and kick the shit out of us. I actually thought he was from Yorkshire, but that's even more depressing. Yeah. Um, this is... A brilliant movie. If you've really not seen is. this movie, yeah. it is an amazing movie. The things I love about it. One, it's brilliantly directed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. Uh, as I mentioned, Nicole Kidman is great. Uh, Finula Finnegan is in it. She is absolutely amazing. James Bentley, who plays uh, the son in it, out of the two kids that are in there, James Bentley takes it by a mile. He's mm -hmm. incredible in this movie. It's one of the some of the most beautiful cinematography you will see yeah. uh, for a horror movie. Uh, the sound is great. If you've got a great sound system, it is really scary. Uh, it's really well edited, and the production design is out of this world for this movie. It, yeah. As the Spanish movies usually are, you know, like um, Guillermo del Toro's movies and, and stuff like that. Production design is always incredible in a Spanish movie. Yeah, and um, God, no, I mm, I wanna I wanna say something about the end, but no, I'm not going to. It, it's well, no. it, it's well worth a watch. I know it's what was it, twenty years. It's way past the statute of limitations on spoilers. No, but there but... are there are some people who have not seen it. I know. No. Uh, let's not be those guys. No, there's just... enough people spoiling shit on the internet for us to join it. Just do yourself a favor. This is coming from both me and him now watch it you'd be surprised at where it all goes that's all i'm gonna say so we've had two horrors that were released mm. but two comedies are also celebrating their anniversary of release in this week okay what we got can you believe steve yes andrew 15 years ago borat was released uh, oh you're not gonna say you don't like the borat movie i i i out of all of his characters, it is the best one to translate to film. Even yeah. though I am a huge fan of Bruno. I've got it. No, I'm going to be honest. I did see Bruno, and there were two versions of that at the time. There was like a 15-rated one and an 18-rated one. And I went with work, and we saw the 18-rated one. And uh, if, if there are any children that's listening right now, you may want to plug up the race for the next few seconds. But the only time that I laughed during that entire movie was the talking penis. <laughs> <laughs> That was it. That was the only uh, part that I laughed, and it was the same with Bora. You know, they, you, you look at where they're going. They're going after rednecks and, and idiot politicians. It's low hanging fruit. It's directed by Larry Charles, who some of you know as the producer of such shows as Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is very popular. He also directed Bruno and uh, The Dictator as well, which was another Sasha Baron Cohen movie. 
And uh, I always love about this movie is um, this was the movie where Sasha Baron Cohen had the police called on him 92 times during shooting. Yeah, you've got to give him props for just sticking oh, with yeah. it after that. Nearly hit that 100. But he got to the point where even the FBI were assigned to him during filming. <laughs> that That is uh, the ultimate thing. And to be honest, you know, this is a character that was was based on a, a Russian doctor that Sasha had met who was uh, unintentionally funny. I guess kind of like um, Inspector Clouseau, I guess. Yeah. Just amped up to 10. And uh, the film had so many tried lawsuits from the people who were like, feeling they were duped every single one of them were dismissed the greatest legacy i think this movie ever has was during that shooting event in kuwait mm. do you remember this mm, not off the top of my head now okay so during this shooting event in kuwait the kazakh shooter actually won the gold medal now that's great news except what happened next as soon as he takes the podium the asian olympic committee played the made-up national anthem for Kazakhstan from this oh, movie instead yes. of the real one. Do you remember that? Oh, God, I guess I remember that. <laughs> oh, there was such uproar about it. I, I will always remember that story breaking. But um, Borat, it actually broke uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11's record. Uh, so it holds the record for the biggest box office opening weekend ever for a movie that has played on less than a 1,000 screens at the time. Wow. Which is pretty damn impressive. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love Sasha Baron Cohen in this movie. <laughs> Gotta say, I've, I've got no problem with Sasha Baron Cohen at all. Um, I actually I watched uh, Grimsby, or The Brothers Grimsby, as it's known, in certain quarters. And I was just howling throughout that. But, you know, he's kind of like, if you're just taking the mick out of rednecks, and or in the case of the, the second one that he did, you're going after Rudy Giuliani with an underage girl. It's like I say, it's low-hanging fruit. Really is. Yes. And at his age, he definitely had some low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, what's the next one? Okay, yeah, this one's going to take you back, Steve. I purposely saved this one till last. Okay. Can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. that 30 years ago, this mm-hmm. week, City Slickers was released? Ah. Oh, have okay. you seen City Slickers? I have seen City Slickers. Um, I've also seen City Slickers too. Oh, Ooh. And I'm going to be controversial. I actually prefer the sequel. You fucking Judas. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> I've come out with it. I've said it. I prefer the sequel. I was young. I wanted more adventure as opposed to watching Middle Life Crisis. Um, okay, well, City Slickers, it was directed by Ron Underwood, who directed the incredible Tremors movie. Oh, yes. Love that uh, movie. He also directed... He also directed Mighty Joe Young and uh, a little-known Robert Downey Jr. movie called Heart and Souls that also had Charles Grodin, which is uh, actually pretty fun. But uh, in doing a bit of research on this movie, uh, Rick Moranis was actually cast in this movie, and I think he was supposed to be the role that Daniel Stern was playing. I can see that. But it was around the time that uh, Rick Moranis' wife was unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. So he dropped out to obviously care for his family, but any responsible guy would. Yeah, this movie also gave us Jake Gyllenhaal in his first ever movie role playing uh, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal Sun, yeah, yeah. I, no, I remember that. Yes. No, I, I didn't Famous know that for... about um, um, Rick Moranis. It does make sense. I really yeah, do I wish so that, that he come back out 
of uh, of the woodwork now because his kids must be getting older. You know, we we do miss him as a performer. I, I've got lots of fond memories of seeing him in stuff like Ghostbusters and stuff like that. So you know, come back out, man. My heart would just sing if he even did one small walk on in that Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh yeah, you out next week. It would make every person on this planet smile. I think without question, yeah. Uh, but this movie, it gave Jack Palance his Oscar. Yes, uh, <laughs> as Curly, he'd, he'd been hunting for one of them for a long time, hadn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think he had been. Uh, I think he got nominated for. I think it was Shane mm. back in the, the the Western days, but you know, in this, this was the one that finally bagged him the gold. Originally, they approached Clint Eastwood to do that role, but apparently, Clint wanted too much money. Uh, they also went to Charles Bronson, who apparently. Uh, Wanted to kill not, someone. Yes, probably the people who asked him. Yeah. And amazingly enough, Robin Williams was actually approached to be the main star before Billy Crystal, I believe. But he was actually tied up with Hook at the time, hmm. which I don't think it had been the same movie at all. Billy Crystal just really owns this movie. Him and Jack Polance are the standouts from this movie. It's just one of those movies you can watch anytime, at any point in your life. It is the greatest, like, warmest comedy. The joke's still funny to this day. But uh, the one thing that really made it interesting for me, looking at City Slickers again today, was what its foreign titles are. Oh, here we go. These are usually brilliant. (laughs) Everything from, what was it, Glass Jungle for Die Hard and... The eighth passenger death for Alien, and uh, uh, what was the what was the French one? Oops, there's where's the pilot or something like that. You know, come on, <laughs> come on, hit me with it. Okay, I chose three specifically that were the highlights of the best. France lovingly called this movie "Life, Love, and Cows." Okay, that's not bad. It fits with the themes. Okay, yeah, all right. Next, and Italy must have liked that title. Because Italy went with, I ran away from the city, life, love, and cows. So, okay, so life, love, and cows was the subtitle. <laughs> yes. But make way, here comes Greece. All right, what has the, the originators of the removing themselves from Europe trend got to uh, offer us? Well, Greece pretty much love to ask questions with their movie titles. So the title of City Slickers in Greece is actually... So, what did you do in the far west, Dad? Huh. Uh, yeah, that's that's not as funny. And it's not even no. as if... No. So, I want to start a little Poddywood competition for all of our listeners out there. Mm-hmm. And we want to come up with the most ridiculous title for a well-known movie. <laughs> uh, and not not one that already exists. But we want you to actually come up with one that is so ridiculous that you'd actually make us want to see this movie again. <laughs> okay, you're going to get extra points if you're a native speaker of of this country and then can translate it to us. Because yes. I'm sure like the the French the original French name for life love and cows what would I I don't know that there would be la vida et l'amour de le buffalo or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's something like that. So, so, we want, so we want you. You would get like, extra dude, points. Where's my you... car? Dude, where's my car in Sweden? Oops, where's my Volvo? 
My Volvo was right here. Where he's my Volvo. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, I, I love I love foreign translation. I think probably Japan or China is going to have the best. I think so. Um, but yeah, this can't be an existing name for a movie. No. So you have to come up with one that sounds so incredibly childish, like a, a child would actually call this movie something. Uh, so we want to hear what it is. All right. I guess it's time to get on to our guests. Yes. And what a magical time we're all about to have. Wizards, witches, and those Scottish girls who go to conventions as slutty Hermione Granger that can all rejoice, because 20 years ago we were introduced to the very first instalment of arguably Warner Brothers' biggest franchise, that is of course, being Harry Potter. Based on the best-selling book by J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone became a big hit in 2001. Released on the same day as David Atkins' movie Novocaine, which is why you probably have never heard of Novocaine. Prior to this, we'd never heard of Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, or Rupert Grint. And Hogwarts, that was simply a term used for the ramifications of a stagnant hookup I had in Salford. But today, Harry Potter is everywhere. And although the series ended in 2011, it still continues to be a worldwide phenomenon. With spin-offs studio tours, and a theatre run. So we wanted to jump on the Hogwarts Express where it all started and discover how that first movie 20 years ago came to be. Now naturally, to do that, we need someone who was actually there. Or in this case, two people who were actually there. And who better than former Warner Brothers Senior VP and Draco Malfoy after 40 years in LA traffic, Bill Daly? And the post-production supervisor, and nowadays Oklahagrid, Mark Marshall. Both of them returning together to cover this very special part of our cinematic upbringing. Bill Daly joining us from LA, Mark Marshall over in Oklahoma. Good morning, guys. How are you? <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, um, after we finish this, could you give me more information on the um, Hermione Granger uh, slutty Reunion or, or conventions, okay? I'd like to attend. <laughs> yes. I would say Google it, but I probably wouldn't to be just on yeah. the safe side. You'd be as much okay. trouble as me trying to Google who the young choir girl in Face Off was from last uh, week. I'm Ugh. not reusing the same punchline to that one as well, so... No, no, because we really will get punched. Oh. Okay, um, so I have to correct you, though. Um there were at least two people, well, there were two people, not at least, exactly two people on this call who actually had heard of Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, and Emma Watson before this film came out, because we spent a whole year working on this film, and we were very familiar with those three people. Oh, okay, then. Obviously, before the movie went into production, okay. Well, you know, well, here's correct. a little-known fact. Um, we almost had uh, Tom Felton as Harry Potter. He was uh, he was the odds-on favorite to um, to uh, garner that role, until David Heyman actually ran into um, Daniel and his parents at a, a a theater production somewhere in London, and inquired about his availability because he thought Daniel kind of fit exactly what they were looking for. So, well, that is something that we are going to cover very shortly, Bill. Okay. So you've added an extra layer for a question later on there. But and first, more okay. to my editing, and more to Steve's editing. 
thank you. <laughs> so, first off, as with any movie we discuss, it's always about separating online fact from fiction. As we've discussed before, IMDb and Wikipedia is not always the purveyor of truth when it comes to finding out about these movies. So the best place to start is the rumour being that uh, Harry Potter under Warner Brothers was originally proposed as a set of CGI animated movies or an attempt to combine various books into one movie. Word is that this was due to concerns over like the ageing of the cast if production ran too long. And apparently this was vetoed by Rowling herself. Is that true? I don't believe so. I can tell you a little bit of backstory, but um, nothing that comes close to what you just described. Okay, then let's get the truth. Okay, when the project the project was first acquired by David Heyman before the um, before the first book even came out, his um, assistant Tanya um, Sketchian found the galleys for the, the first book and presented it to David. And that was her job. She was um, uh, always looking out for um, projects for David to, uh, to produce. And she um, came upon this, presented it to David. David uh, got an option on it from the publisher. Um, so the, the film had already been optioned on the first book before the book came out in 1997. When the studio started to think about who they wanted to direct this film. They wanted somebody who had experience with, um, with kids. And one of the very early considerations was Steven Spielberg. I was against that. I didn't see, we owned this property. And by the time this book, the, the first one, before it went into production, the fourth book had already come out and it was already, it had already caught fire. You know, the, the first run of the first book was only 500 copies. So if you can find a first edition, you have gold in your hands. The, the, the whole project, I always liken it to, to James Bond. By the time The Gobbler Fire came out, we had Goldfinger on our hands. It, it yeah. became this huge phenomenon. Um, so we knew that we had a very important property um, and we didn't want to mess it up. So they approached Steven Spielberg. Steven, at the time, um, they had already set up DreamWorks and they were trying to do something to bolster their animation, um, DreamWorks animation. And Steven wanted to do an animated version of this. And the studio just turned it down flat. And I was grateful because I, we were the ones who acquired this, you know, through David Heyman. And th I didn't see any reason on earth to share this with someone else. Because when you, when you get somebody as big as Steven Spielberg, you're taking on a partner. And, yeah. and not that I had any say in any of this. Uh, it was just my personal feeling. I just couldn't see why we would do that because there are capable directors out there. And um, and we found one in Chris Columbus. Now that everything's all set up and the franchise is so well known and it's so loved, do you think that you could possibly see an animated series but kind of going more into all the stuff that was cut out of the various books during filming? Know, maybe even bringing back the original cast to voice them because you know. Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah. It's certainly an option. The the, um, the Warner Brothers only um, possesses the right to remake the films, and I guess animation would fall into that. They don't own the characters, mm. so they couldn't do like the Broccoli family did with James Bond and create um, films that had nothing to do with any of the books. 
you know, if if um, if the Ian Fleming estate had um, retained the same rights that J.K. Rowling did, then um, there there would have only been like twelve or thirteen James Bond films. But uh, but they they owned the character, so they could create their own thing. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers doesn't have that ability. Um, so it would be it would be certainly very interesting to see what they would do. I don't see why they why one couldn't do that. So we will get onto an actual question that we've got written down in a minute. But <laughs> just just uh, for my own clarification, does that mean then, if there is a character that for whatever reason didn't make it into the uh, actual live action version, like Peeves, like Peeves, yes. Um, would that then prevent Warner Brothers from including Peeves in, say, a remake or... Uh... No, 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 because Warner Brothers has the rights to the books and Peeves is in the book. Okay. They just, okay. they can't create a spinoff of Peeves. Okay, they I'm They own the character. Right, so you're saying like they couldn't do, uh, say for something like HBO Max, they, they can't actually do a spinoff of, say, something like um, Ron's Family or stuff like that. Right. Or other characters like uh, a younger version of Serious Snape. So Although I got to tell you, that would be really cool. Meet the yeah. Weasleys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I can imagine the jingle right now. <laughs> Weasleys, meet the Weasleys. Never mind. Here's Ron Weasley. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, Harry Potter nowadays is a household name worth billions. But exactly how much of a of a tough sell was it when the movie was first bought? Because it sounds like the rights just got snapped up in an instant. But how how did you actually know that it was going to be this big thing? Well, David had uh, David Heyman had um, a relationship with Warner Brothers already, and um, and we had a, um, a creative exec Lionel Wigram who w- was very close friends with um, with him. So uh, David alerted uh, Lionel to the project. I remember seeing it appear, because we went through in one of the previous episodes how I would get a production status report and it would include things that were um, in in development but getting close to becoming in, in pre-production. It, it, that was the pending status. A pending status meant that you were you're um, you're you're still in development, but you're getting close to getting some sort of a um, a nod on this thing. I mean, I have a, a longer history with Harry Potter than than practically anybody else at the studio, um, because my wife and I were in England in 1997, the year the book came out, and she was very pregnant at the time, and the um, we encountered people. We were traveling with another couple, and he. Uh, is English and had a lot of friends over there. And we stayed with a lot of his friends and somewhere along the line, um, you know, was, Oh, you're pregnant. Uh, do you, have you created a nursery yet? Do you have baby books and stuff like that? And somebody had suggested Harry Potter. And I remember asking, well, what, what is Harry Potter? <clears throat> and she said, uh, it's, um, it's about a young boy who's an orphan who goes away to boarding school and and a mystery ensues and he solves the mystery. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't even come close as we know to describing yeah. what it was. Um, and I'm thinking Hardy Boys, like a, like a dumb American, I'm thinking like Hardy Boys things. So, so I bought the book while I was over there. Sadly, I don't have a first edition, 
but I bought the book. Um, I started to read it and I, I couldn't get past page 25, honestly, because I'm reading about Vernon Dursley getting into his car and he's driving, he's on his way to work and there's a cat smiling at him and suddenly the cat disappears and I'm going, <laughs> you know, what? I mean, what is this? <laughs> uh, so, so I put it down. Uh, my wife, Patty, picked it up and she quite liked it. Um, so when the second book came out and the third book and the fourth book, um, she asked me to get them. And there was a website in England called uh, bookpages.co.uk. Bookpages is now amazon.co.uk. Um, um, but I used to get, if I, if I was going to get a book that came from England, I, I actually wanted an English copy. I never wanted to get one that was being filtered through an American editor. I, I don't need to be told that trainers are sneakers in the U.S. and the jumpers are sweaters and sweatshirts in the U.S. I don't need to be told that. I can, you know, I, I can read English English. So um, I always, so I got those books um, and then four came out and it was starting to become a phenomenon. So as, uh, as the film started to approach getting a green light, and well, it actually, it got a green light and we were about to start production and Bill Young, who was the head of, um, he was the head of physical production, worldwide, worldwide theatrical production. Um, he said, we're not sending scripts out. Um, just read the book. It's going to be very, very, very close to the book. Just read the book. So finally, I had, I had to read the book. I was required to read the book, even though I wasn't able to get past page 25. So I picked it up, and I got to about page 30 or 40 or so, and then I zipped right through that book, through the second book, through the third book, and the fourth <laughs> book in, in like three sittings. I, I am not kidding. I gave up several days of my life to to reading all of these books, and I was blown away, absolutely blown away, and kind of upset with myself that they'd been sitting on the shelf for a couple of years, and I hadn't read them. Um, and I became a lifelong fan after um, binging on those books for, for a week. Well... For both American and English listeners to the show, the movie is either known as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in the US. Uh, what was the reasoning behind the US name change? And I understand that it resulted in filming multiple takes of scenes in both versions. Well, I, I can take this question. Um, the Because it was... It, it, it actually resulted in a kind of an embarrassing moment to me. I knew the project is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone because I had the English book. And I found out in the middle of production that the U.S. books said Sorcerer's Stone. Okay, I didn't even know that. I hadn't even seen an American book. I had my English ones. We were watching dailies in Screening Room 2 at Warner Brothers. And um, the, there was a scene where the kids come running into Professor McGonagall and saying, we need to see Professor Dumbledore. It's important. It's about the Sorcerer's Stone. Okay. <laughs> they go to the Sorcerer's Stone. And I practically jumped out of my chair and said, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and my boss at the time um, 
like it, when I was in post-production, Mark Solomon was my boss within the department, but I, there was another layer of bureaucracy there. Um, um, Amy Harrington, she specialized in visual effects, but she was my boss too. Um, I reported through her to Mark. Um, and Amy was sitting there and she was a huge fan of the things too. And she goes, no, 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 you're wrong. And, and I argued and argued and argued. And then we, and our offices were next door to each other in our building. And she pulled the book off the shelf in her office and showed me. And I was so embarrassed. I didn't even know. Absolutely didn't know. Um, so we had to cover that scene. And I think that was in real three or four. We had to cover that scene with both. I mean, we completely shot. We didn't just dub over the, the word. We completely reshot the scenes. Yeah. Um, with both Sorcerer's Stone and Philosopher's Stone. So real one, because of the main title, um, had to be covered twice. And then, and then there was that interior scene. And then towards the end, there's a reference to the uh, Philosopher's Stone. I think when uh, Dumbledore is in, uh, is in the hospital with, with Harry, I believe that's where it was. So we had to um, do that too. We, we ended up with a double inventory. So it wasn't just covering that line and the main and end titles, um, we had to, uh, we had to make additional reels for the DTS discs that went out because we did the, um, we did quad tracks and I don't want to get into describing what they were, but, um, we had to do that. And Mark was very, very involved in, in all of that stuff. And, and the, the, the way the studio did it was if you lived in a territory where the book was Sorcerer's Stone, that's the version of the movie you got. And if you lived in a territory where it was Philosopher's Stone, that's what you got. Now, that kind of messed up North America because Canada got the book as Philosopher's Stone and the U.S. got Sorcerer's Stone. So um, domestic distribution in the U.S. includes uh, Mexico and Canada. So we had a double inventory just within our own distribution apparatus um, domestically. I could I just imagine him now. Hey. What's all this uh, sorcerer's stone about, eh? <laughs> yeah. 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 I do actually really like Canada. We're going to get letters, aren't we, for that? Uh, well, how do, um, how do Canadians spell Canada? C-A-A-A-N-A-A-A. Uh, it's it's so I'm nice Canadian. knowing that our next guest after this episode is Canadian. <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt the Mexican accent either because my ex-girlfriend will come over and she'll kill me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that is, actually, that is actually quite interesting, though, because I assumed for the longest time, um, as probably a lot of British people did, that it was the you guys, it was the filmmakers who was responsible for the change in the name. I didn't realise it was the actual rename of the book. Yeah, there. it was Scholastic Publishing in the U.S., um, they thought um, that even though the Philosopher's Stone is an actual thing in literature, mm. um, they thought that the Sorcerer's Stone would just play better for um, American kids. Yeah. Uh, well, with it being the first movie in the franchise, was Rowling extremely protective of her property during the initial meetings? Yes. Um, the thing was, the studio was very cautious because um, we had... Um, it, it, it sort of was a, um, a double-edged sword. We had this great property and there was great anticipation for this, for this film, this first film. And we had every opportunity to mess it up. And one of the things we did not want to do was have the author come out as Anne Rice did 
come out and say, yeah. um, oh, this film is terrible. It's not what I intended. It wasn't mm. this and that, you know, and everything else. Um, so we didn't run absolutely everything past her. She wasn't approving wardrobe and stuff like that. And she had very kind remarks about the casting and everything. I remember um, seeing her being interviewed about, have you seen the film yet? And and it was always no. I, I think she stayed away from the film at, while it was in production. She wasn't getting dailies, but um, while it was in production, she was. I don't think she wanted to be in a position to criticize it. It was easier to just say no. I haven't I haven't seen it yet, and I but I will. And we did. We showed it to her before before the premiere. Um, but she was very generous with her praise for the three kids. Um, she thought casting Alan Rickman was inspired. She just she thought that was wonderful casting. She really liked Robbie Coltrane. That's um, she said that's who she had in mind when when first thinking about the movie and the possibility of casting and stuff like that. So she was um, she was very very generous with her praise about it. She later um, became a producer on the last adaptation of the last book that became two films. She later became producer on those. And I think she's accredited producer on Fantastic Beasts and all that stuff. So there's a lot more collaboration with her um, later in the process. Well, speaking of Robbie Coltrane, and I'm doing a lot of this, I'm going way off the the list. But there there was a British comedy series called Blackadder that ran kind of like the late mid to late 80s. And they had a Christmas special which was mm-hmm. like with every Christmas special, more or less, it it was um, Christmas Carol, but from the yes. other way around, where a good person seen all these bad ancestors, and then he becomes bad at the end of it. But Robbie Coltrane is in that as like the the ghost of Christmas present, and he's all made up in this great big robe with this great big bushy beard and this great big hair, and he could pretty much be Hagrid right there. I guess so. Yeah, I'm familiar with Blackadder's yeah. uh, Christmas Carol. Oh, there we go. So you know exactly, okay. uh, you know exactly <laughs> oh, what he looks Miranda like. Miranda yeah. Richardson was like the greatest Queen Elizabeth ever. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah, and of course she came back on to be Rita Skeeter later on, yeah. didn't she? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I mentioned before, finding the right director is obviously one of the biggest challenges for such a beloved property. And obviously we've already mentioned Steven Spielberg here, but apparently other directors such as Ivan Reitman, Rob Reiner, M. Night Shyamalan, and Terry Gilliam, who was actually J.K. Rowling's preferred choice, apparently. Uh, how many directors do you remember were approached? Because apparently Terry Gilliam was kind of upset about the snub of not being in the final running of it. I don't think... None of those names came up, as far as I know. They had, really? Um, this, I wasn't in every discussion. You know, I was a senior vice president, but I was not... I wasn't even a senior VP at the time of this first film, but I was not consulted on stuff like that. I never heard that Terry Gilliam was approached or not approached. I never heard his name come up. I never heard N. Night Shyamalan's name came up. I never heard that. Um, I I did hear Spielberg. I heard the whole Spielberg thing. Um, it wouldn't surprise me that Ivan Reitman given his uh, visual effects background too, um, with Ghostbusters and, and the like. Um, but Ivan, I know, was busy with other projects, actually for our studio at the time. So um, don't it doesn't surprise me, but I didn't hear that name before. Um, 
And I do remember Chris Columbus came up early in the conversation, as did um, Alfonso, because Alfonso had done, uh, there's the phone going. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's Terry Gilliam. Fuck you, Bill. Yeah. I was I gonna, that was my job. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't deny us. I'm going to go and remake Man of the Mancha. Again, <laughs> yeah. I, I, honestly, I never heard Terry Gilliam's name. As far as the directors you guys mentioned, um, I never heard Terry Gilliam's name come up in conversation. That's not to say it didn't. I just never heard it. Um, I never heard M. Like I never even heard of M. Night Shyamalan at that time. I don't think Six Sense had been out yet. But I do remember Chris Columbus came up early. Um, and um, Alfonso Quaron came up because he had done Little Princess with us um, yes, a few brilliant. years earlier. But they pretty much settled on Chris. They knew Chris um, had done Home Alone. So he was already a sort of a box office winner, too. And, and it generally liked. I, mean, you know, um, I can't think of anybody that had anything really negative to say about him. Um, there, there were things in the press never around the studio, but things in the press about, oh, you guys, you're not being, you're being too safe. You're not taking enough chances. You know, why would you go with somebody like Chris Columbus? And I thought Chris Columbus was a great choice. And when you go back and look at the, those first two films, Chris was the one who cast those people. Chris was the guy who um, approved all the art direction and the wardrobe and the music. So uh, do you find fault with any of the choices there? No, he solidified everything pretty much he right from that first one, didn't job. he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did a great job. And I, and there's no reason to complain at all. Um, as we got into production, the you know, the only negative thing I would say about Chris was that he and I and I completely understand it. I mean, you can't really fault him. Um, he kept trying to get us to, to move the production to the U.S. Not the actual production, but post-production. He wanted to come back home. He was gone for a long time. And he, and he did two of those films with us. He, he was just gone for a long, long time. And, um, and he kept by, trying to figure ways to bring the post-production back to the U.S. But that would have killed the tax deal. I mean, we, we yeah. were getting a, a tremendous investment from the British government you know, to do this there. But that would be the only negative thing, and there's nothing negative about that. I totally get why he wanted to do that. Yeah, if you're homesick, you're homesick. It's a good way to kind of see again to Mark, though, because, Mark, you had known Chris Columbus for quite a number of years uh, from your time at Amblin, and Chris Columbus, I believe, had worked there around the, the young Sherlock Holmes era. Well, Chris had an office, actually, um, in the Amblin building just down the hall from Stephen's office. You know, he had written Gremlins, and Stephen took him the idea for Goonies uh, because Stephen had written the story. So Chris set up an office just down the hall, as I said, and had a little lap, a little computer with a very tiny screen and green lettering is more of a word processor and wrote the Goonies script on site. Uh, and it, I think he'd already had the idea for young Sherlock Holmes, but uh, finished that out as well. While he was at Amblin, and then and then and then moved off the lot, but but uh, yeah, we saw Chris every day, and um, he was just a really nice, quiet kind of guy. Apparently, Rowling had one condition: 
in saying yes to Warner Brothers. And I don't know how much this is true in light of you mentioning about the, the tax deal and everything. Um, but it was that the entire cast be made up of British talent. And apparently this automatically erased interests from a lot of American stars, uh, particularly such as Robin Williams, who really wanted to play Hagrid. I'm not aware of that. Well, everybody was particular. It wasn't just her. It was David Heyman as well. Yeah, and he was the guy driving this whole machine. They wanted a British production, and and it needed to be in order to qualify for the tax deal because early on we made some errors. We sent um, a wonderful production team to the UK to handle this production, and and that's um, Duncan Henderson and or Jay um, Minow yeah. and um, and Todd Arno. I I can't think of a better team to actually produce a big movie like this. But immediately, um, they were bad spend as far as the tax deal goes. And I think, um, I think in retrospect, they might have sent that team to a different movie, like Troy or something like that, maybe. And then um, and when the second film came around, I think, um, I think Duncan was still on, on the books as a, like a co-producer or something like that. But they brought David Barron, um, a British-based producer, line producer um, to do that. And then David stayed through two. He didn't do three, but he came back for four and did all the rest of the films. And And David Barron is flat out one of the best producers I've ever worked with anywhere. And I've been here, I've been in this business a very, very long time. And you can't find a better producer than David Barron. We got lucky to have him. Well, Michael Goldenberg apparently wrote a draft of the script but it was rejected in favour of Steve Clove's script by the producer David Heyman. Do you remember any of what the major selling point on Clove's version compared to Goldenberg's? Uh, I, I know Michael Goldenberg did the script for number five, um, but I wasn't aware that he did the first one. And, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have my production status reports uh, from this period, from 2001, I'm sure they're in my garage somewhere. Um, I just don't have digital copies like I do. Um, I've, I, I think I have digital copies of all of them from 2004 onward. Um, but I don't have that reference material to go to. I'm not aware of that. I know Steve Clovis met with J.K. Rowling, and they got along um, instantly. They worked very, very well together instantly. I don't know why Steve didn't do five. He might have been there uh he might have been doing something else or might have had some burnout he came back and did the others um i i'm not aware that there were competing writers for these scripts it, it's possible i'm just not aware of it have you heard anything mark no not a not a thing internet rumors once again then <laughs> could be it's possible be. that's what we're here to do we're here to squash those rumors and get to the actual truth nuggets that are behind them well okay then <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the original date planned for release was the summer of 2001 on July 4th. Uh, this was due to making Potter a short production window, which also pulled many directors out of the running. Now, how did this then change to a winter release? It was never slated for the summer. Oh, I don't know where that there came we go. From. Yeah, there you go. The internet is built on lies. <laughs> Again, anything is possible, and and dates can be thrown out. We have a Warner Brothers had a very interesting and complicated process for figuring out when things were going to be released and they were Dan Feldman and his group were very very good at um, pinpointing um, 
the dates when something should be released. And they created software, in fact, to manage that. And they knew what everybody else was doing in town. We all know we, um, we didn't collaborate with the other um, heads of the studios, but we talked to them all the time. I mean, it's a very collegial sort of thing that goes on in Hollywood with the, where we do talk to our competitors and everything. And we, and we discuss issues that are related to, um, that affect all the studios, but we can't collude with them. We can't call up um, Fox and say, let's put the squeeze on this particular vendor because we don't, we're paying too much for this. We don't do that. We, there's no sort of collusion, but, um, but there's a lot of discussion about technical difficulties. And that especially was true when 3d came in, but I think we covered this already when we talked about, uh, yeah. Green Lantern. Yeah. If you're listening to this, you can go back and then check out, it's a really good episode. Well, I might also add that, you know, we didn't even start shooting the first Potter until the end of September and didn't wrap until the last latter part of uh, April of 2001. So it would have been impossible to get it in the theater for July 4th. I don't believe okay. that was ever part of the plan. You know, no. the, I'll tell you, the one original plan, the one th constant thing that was always part of this plan, at least in the, in the mind of David Heyman, and on paper with our production status reports, was Richard Harris was going to do Dumbledore. Even before yes. Richard Harris agreed to do it, his name was down as mm. Dumbledore. And that was one of the things that attracted me to the project when I first saw it um, on our uh, production status report, because I, I'd already heard of Harry Potter, but I didn't know the story. But I saw Richard Harris was attached to it. And, and I go way, way back with Richard Harris. So, um, so I took notice of that. Okay. Well, that's good because that comes to our next question. Oh, <laughs> so okay. well, I preempted you on that one, Bill. So, <laughs> so getting on to casting, uh, J.K. Rowling had apparently everything's going to be apparently now until it's yeah. clarified. J.K. Rowling apparently had some control over the casting choices, handpicking Alan Rickman, Maggie Smith, and Robbie Coltrane for their roles specifically. Now. How was uh, Richard Harris cast? Uh, originally, it's mentioned online that Patrick McGowan was the original offering on that role. Nope. It was always Richard Harris. David Heyman and Richard Harris um, had a very, very long relationship. I think Richard might have been David's godfather. Um, really? Uh, David's oh. father was... Um, I, I, and forgive me for not knowing exactly. He, he, he was either an entertainment attorney or... A, um, or an agent. Um, sadly, he passed away uh, just last year. But his um, his father had a, a very long relationship with Richard Harris, and um, and David Heyman was um, always had Richard Harris in mind. Well, there you go. Sorry, Patrick. I know um, that would have been interesting. It would have been, been very yeah. very interesting. And I know when Richard Harris passed away, a lot of people were talking about. Um, Ian McKellen, yeah, I guess because they were already used to seeing him with a beard, you know, I just thought that was stupid to to bring him in and confuse all the Lord of the Ring fans and everything for, you know, to have him as Dumbledore. And then they were talking about Peter O'Toole, which I didn't think was a great choice because uh, Peter is um, a little too brooding, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He he. Um, but who I thought would have been, and nobody ever mentioned this. And this is the first time I'm mentioning it out loud to a large group. 
my first choice, and I didn't have it. I didn't have a choice, okay? So, <laughs> you know, um, I didn't have any say in it at all. My first choice would have been Michael Caine. Because Michael Caine, there's something about Michael Caine that's so playful, yeah. you know? And that was the one thing that, um, that Richard Harris did, um, did better was the playful quality in his approach to Dumbledore. When Michael Gambone came in, they went out and got another Irishman. Um, he played Dumbledore more like a, uh, like a college professor. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, that sort of uh, quality, like an old hippie. Whereas Richard Harris, and then and I and I think he became more and more playful as sort of the series went on, but he was never quite, he never had that glint in his eye that Richard Harris did. You just knew that Richard yeah. Harris was up to mischief as well as everything else. <laughs> yeah, Michael Caine could have pulled that off, I think, because he, he's got a number of movies under his belt, a lot of comedic movies. You know, you've got Austin Powers. You've got one of my favorites, uh, which is a British movie called Without a Clue. Yes, yes. brilliant. Yeah, where With Ben um, Kingsley. Yeah, with Ben Kingsley, where it turns out that Watson was the genius behind Sherlock Holmes and the actual person who yeah, was Sherlock yes. Holmes is a woman mad crazy idiot. So that kind yeah. of like cheeky glint mixed in with kind of the the, uh, the veritas that he brought to, say, Alfred in The Dark Knight would have been great. I've got it! His name is really Artie Morty! <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? I love that movie so much. <laughs> Steve, your question. Oh dear, yeah. Sorry, I'm getting uh, I'm getting distracted now. So, keeping up with the casting, um, how extensive was the search for the children? Because they are the most pivotal roles in the entire movie. It was huge. It was huge, and they they found gold when they found all of them. I have to tell you, not just Ron, Hermione, and Harry, but you know Tom Felton did a wonderful job as. As Draco, and I got to tell you, the very first day of dailies with him in there, um, we had a production executive who was not attached to this show, but had read the books, was familiar with it. Um, do you remember, Mark? Do you remember Lynn Morgan? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Lynn, <laughs> we were sitting and she said, hey, is it okay if I stay? Can I watch the um, your Potter dailies? And I said, sure. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, whatever, you know. And... Um, she so he appears draco appears on the screen in this first scene and out loud i mean she this is sort of the internal monologue that would go on but it came out of her brain and through her mouth and we all heard it okay she sees him and she goes and he's introducing himself i'm draco malfoy and she goes oh my god does that child realize he's playing the most hated character in all of literature <laughs> Um, so that was great casting. Um, Seamus, you know, the character Seamus, great casting. They were, they were all, all wonderful casting in there. And if you look closely at um, all the redheaded girls, you're going to see Chris Columbus's daughter in some, some of those scenes in the first, the first film for sure, maybe the first two. Well, and her son, his son too is in there oh, looking at the uh, Nimbus 2000 through the window of the shop. Ah, all right. There you go. Well, throughout those casting sessions, how much emphasis was placed on the prospective cast who have read the book? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know at all. Because uh, I think by the point the cast came around, scripts were actually made. It wasn't like when you guys were just handed the book. 
Oh yeah, they got scripts. Everybody that was um, directly on the production got the scripts. They just didn't give them out to the executives in uh, Burbank. I could just imagine those auditions though. Okay, we're going to audition from page 204. Uh, if you flip through, that's <laughs> chapter 85. Uh, I can't imagine that very many of those kids showed up without having read the book, certainly without their parents having read the books. You know, and by you know by the time we did this, as I said, the the fourth book was out. Uh, well, Alan Rickman, God rest his soul, uh, yeah. was apparently told about Snape's relationship with Lily Potter by J.K. Rowling while this movie was being made uh, to help guide his performance through the series. Now, to the best of your knowledge, were there any other secrets from later stories that were divulged in the same way during production? I don't think any other character had the arc that Snape had. I mean, as I look back on it, as I look back on it, Professor Snape had the the biggest arc of any character, don't you think? Yeah, yeah I think probably one of the closest ones pro- would actually be Draco, you know, particularly if you look at him during Half-Blood Prince, where he's finally being kind of groomed to be this assassin almost. Yeah. Well, filming was set to be done in England, uh, in all locations except one, an intended location of Canterbury Cathedral. Now, to your knowledge, how did the change from Canterbury Cathedral come to change to Gloucester Cathedral? And what was the fallout from that? I don't remember any fallout. Um, they they actually did a lot of filming all over England. Um, Alnwick Castle was the exterior for Hogwarts. And that looks very, very different in the first two films than it does in the third. Um, because um, Alfonso took the company up to Scotland. So if you look closely at um, the locations in the first two films, you'll see that the main entrance to Hogwarts, it's sort of on a, a, a low grade sort of slope coming out, you know, out to um, Hagrid's hut. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the third one, it's a very, very severe slope because um, Alfonso had moved that location from Alnwick Castle, which is on the northeast coast of, of England, almost into Scotland. Um, so that's where those exteriors were. But we also did exteriors at Oxford. Um, and I know that there were was some sort of cathedral somewhere. I don't know specifically Canterbury had been earmarked for it. I mean, I, I know Canterbury has, has um, the older part of that cathedral is very Romanesque, as opposed to the, the, you know, the newer structures that were built around it. Um, I have been there. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know specifically an answer to that question because I, I'm not aware of any real controversy with any of the uh, locations. Well, apparently, uh, from what is written here, uh, Canterbury Cathedral refused filming because the story had pagan elements. But Gloucester Cathedral said yes, but apparently uh, they got picketed by a bunch of groups kind of for the same reasons. I, I'm not aware of that, Mark. Mark, you were in England. Did you hear about any of that? Not at all, but considering that England's kind of a pagan country, I'm surprised. <laughs> yes. We, we, we don't have virgins for a reason. You'll <laughs> <laughs> be sacrificed in five minutes. <laughs> oh, man. And that's where we have to leave our interview for this particular moment in time. Now, I'm sure that you're all eager to learn what other secrets Bill and Mark have for us. But that's going to have to wait until next week. Because right now, we need to nominate five. 
Now's the time to... What's in the box? Or do we? No, we don't. Because the thing is, we didn't actually intend for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone to be a two-parter. But for reasons beyond our control, it ended up being one. Mm-hmm. So our nominate five that was, how should we say, hijacked from us, uh, <laughs> is actually going to be on the end of next week's show. <laughs> yeah, Bill. Yeah, I, I, I call that industrial takeover. See, here's the thing. We never actually managed to get a Nominate 5 to go the way that we want it to. Bill is by far and away the worst person for that. He's, he nominates 7, <laughs> and then 3, and then hijacks it here. Okay, right, fair enough. We well, see your he, game plan. He's staying on brand. I think he genuinely believes it's not supposed to go well every week. But we do love you, Bill. And uh, next week, you and Mike will have your opportunity to do a very special nominate five. I would say have your opportunity. You didn't even <laughs> you didn't even wait for an opportunity. You just took it, you which is what we it. like about you. Yes. But uh, so we decided not to do a nominate five this week, and instead we're just going to jump straight into what's in the box. If you're upset about this, then please write a note to your local MP. Yes, or just go online and whine about it and try and cancel us. Yeah, like as if we care, whatever. <sighs> anyway, what's 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 in the box, Steve? Oh, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to improve my music. I keep doing that, musical. I went to do musical <laughs> education. You're not improving my musical education, you're improving my movie education. Uh, what's in the box... <laughs> Sound <laughs> like Arnie got to watch a movie. I need to improve my musical education. <laughs> oh god, I, I, that I, really ca- I really called on that bloody Arnie impression, didn't I? Yes, you did. Uh, I'm not well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, this is staying be- in the show. I shouldn't even be here today. Anyway, I'm going to do that again. Go on. What's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to improve my movie education and get me away from video games and all the other crap that I usually watch, such as City Slickers Part 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. And to do that, he's going to put his hand into a box full of movies that are all certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, if he pulls out the name of a movie and I have seen it, Then he keeps pulling out names of movies until he comes across one which I haven't seen. And then I have to go away and watch it the day before we record our next episode. So, Sir Andrew of Coughing, what do you have for us today? Uh, You've got the talented Mr. Ripley. Mm, Well, you're lucky right off the box and that shrinks down the length of the show even further because I have not seen the talented Mr. Ripley. Very good. That's like... Two and a half hour movie, you're going to enjoy that. Oh, it's Anthony do- Minghella actually, and, and he rarely disappointed. No, I so, don't mind Anthony Minghella. Uh, it's a good movie based on the Tom Ripley books that was also followed by Ripley's Game and uh, the other one that no one can remember. But the actor sensed to change in every single movie, but this was the one everyone remembers. This is the gold winner. I was going to say, because he was in Ripley's Game, because it was someone completely different than Matt Damon, wasn't it? Yes, it went straight from Matt Damon to John Malkovich. Really? Yes. Wow, there's a bit of a really. <laughs> That's yeah. That that is that is quite a uh, quite a jump there. But 
you know, they could have gone with someone like Jared Leto or someone like that. You know, you could probably get away with it. No, we're going full on milk. Yeah. Get out the Malkin powder. Oh, nothing makes me sadder than the age and lust is bladder in the airplane. Yeah. Conair. Yes. Guilty pleasure. So, yes, uh, you've got the talented Mr. Ripley uh, to be the movie of next week. Okay. Uh, and then we have the second part of our Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Sorcerer's Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? A philosopher. Yes. Philosopher. <laughs> it's him and the Thesaurus. They're two, <laughs> two of the smartest dinosaurs to ever roam the earth. Yeah, this is. One the- talks a lot, and the other one corrects him. Yeah. <laughs> One's musing on the meaning of life and the other one's just saying, no, it is this. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us on Poddywood this week. And uh, we also want to give a a big shout out to uh, Barbara Koppel for being our guest last week. I know I forgot to do it at the beginning of the show, but she was an absolutely phenomenal guest Mm. uh, to kick off this season. We're really looking forward to this season because we have got some true magic coming up throughout it. No, you guys have got no idea of the level of awesome we're going to be bringing to this. We've already got episodes in the bank. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yes. There's, there's been some amazing episodes that we have recorded with some amazing guests. And just a bit of everything. It's, it's been mm-hmm. so good. And it's been so female-led yeah. um, this season so far, apart from Bill and Mark, obviously, um, who just felt they had to go over two shows. <laughs> their masculinity Just was so threatened they went for two shows <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> no we're, we're kidding it, it was a, we we basically laid so many questions out and you know bill had such great answers for them that you know we we just went long and long on it and then suddenly yeah. decided this is going over two shows but we've got a, an amazing episode of ellen david coming up which may be probably the best show we'll ever do that interview was Absolutely just incredible yeah. we got natasha mouth coming up who is mm-hmm. an amazing guest with uh she, uh she pulls no punches in hers i'll put it that way nope no she <laughs> yeah, does yeah. not and we've got amazing guests coming up and some returning as well and uh we, we just can't wait and we're so glad to have you with us yes right uh for now i am going to go off and play lord of the rings a battle for middle earth 2 i'm gonna go and watch cockneys versus zombies before i go to sleep oh. because i want to i want to see some get run over no names no pack drill that is his name as far as i'm concerned i want a separate lawyer okay for now (laughs) it's a goodbye for me and i'll see you next week bye I bet that truly burns. <laughs>